0: Well, you can take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn along with me to the book of Habakkuk. Feel free to begin at the table of contents and just double-check that, you know, just so you know it's there, the book of Habakkuk. This morning, we're both resuming and concluding our four-part series in Habakkuk. I had intended to complete this series... Uh, in early December, but the Lord had other plans, I guess. Illness took me out of the pulpit for two Sundays, and then we were launched into the Christmas season and moving to a new building and all of that. So it's been a while since part three of our series together, which was right before Thanksgiving. And so uh, with that in mind, in Habakkuk chapter three is where we'll be this morning. This morning we're going to circle back and wrap up this little book that has such a big message for us. As we've studied this little book together, we've seen that Habakkuk provides us with gospel answers for some of life's toughest questions. Each week we've studied the book, we've seen Habakkuk asking the Lord a different question. The first question Habakkuk asked the Lord was, Lord, where are you when life gets hard? Where are you when life gets hard? This is where the book begins. Habakkuk chapter one, verse two. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. I suspect many of us can empathize with Habakkuk and the way he was feeling. He's crying out to God, he's praying to God, and yet nothing seems to be happening. The situation is not relieved Well, we know the situation in Israel's southern kingdom at that time. The kingdom of Judah was desperate. By and large, the people had forsaken the Lord, and the result was idolatry, iniquity, violence, wickedness, strife, and injustice of all kinds. And that's what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk said it himself in verse 4, the law is ignored, Habakkuk 1, four: the law is ignored, justice is never upheld, the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. In such a situation it seemed as though the Lord was deaf to Habakkuk's cries for help. Again and again Habakkuk had prayed that God would act and bring relief and there seemed to be no reply from heaven. Habakkuk felt abandoned by God at his darkest hour. Then in chapter 1 and verse 5, God reveals that he has heard Habakkuk's prayer and his cries for help. And while it seemed to Habakkuk that God wasn't doing anything, in fact, the reality was quite different. God was doing something, it just wasn't what Habakkuk expected. Habakkuk one five. God replies to Habakkuk's please, and, and the Lord says, Look among the nations, observe, look around you, be astonished, and wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Oh, I'm at work, Habakkuk. I am busy at work. There is much going on. And then in verse 6, God reveals just what He's doing and what His plans are. Habakkuk 1.6, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. I'm at work, Habakkuk, I'm raising up a people. The Chaldeans. God reveals here to Habakkuk that He has a plan and He is taking action. However, it was not all what Habakkuk expected or desired. God is raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, and they would invade Judah, destroy the temple, burn Jerusalem to the ground, and take the nation away into captivity. That's what the Lord was doing. Now, this is not at all what Habakkuk had in mind when he's praying for God to act which reminds us that God always hears our prayers and He cares, even when it seems like He's not listening. It's also reminded us that God's ways are not our ways. We may pray for a certain thing, but that may not be in accord with the Lord's will. God may be doing other things that we don't realize, that we can't comprehend that God's purposes are higher and greater than we can possibly see or even imagine. No, God is always at work. And although many times we wouldn't invite particular circumstances in our lives, we can rest assured that God hears our cries, that he loves us, that he cares about us, and that he always has our good and his glory in mind. Next, from Chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verses 4, we see Habakkuk ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Another of the great questions of life. Habakkuk has this question too. In chapter 1 and verse 12, Habakkuk affirms God's intentions to use the Babylonians as his tool of correction for his rebellious people. But why would God do that? Why would God raise up and bless, seemingly bless, this rebellious people, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, raise them up and use people like them who are actually more wicked to correct his own people who are, in fact, less wicked? Why would God do that? Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, this is Habakkuk's complaint and you cannot look on wickedness with favor so god why do you look on favor on those who deal treacherously why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they why do the wicked people seem to get ahead while the righteous are struggling in other words Habakkuk was asking that age-old question why do bad things happen to good people Now, as we saw, that question is fraught with problems. It assumes that there are good people. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In any absolute sense, there are no good people deserving of good things. So we took that question apart and we reframed it a bit. Why does God allow bad things to happen to Christians? That's a reasonable question. Why does God allow bad things happen to his own people, Christians who are called by his name? And as we saw then, there are a number of reasons God allows adversity into our lives to make us dependent upon him, to correct us, to grow us, to shape us, and so on. There are all kinds of reasons God may allow us to go through things that we would never ask for, to allow us to go through suffering, and many times we just don't know why God's allowing it. We have to acknowledge that. But to be sure, God's designs behind our suffering are always for our good, and that brings us to what is really the key verse of the whole book, which is found in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The proud one, the godless one, the independent one, the wicked, their soul is not right within them. They have a crooked soul. Their soul is bent out of shape. In contrast to the proud are the righteous. And what marks them out? Well, they live by faith in God. Trusting God, even when things aren't going their way, even when things don't seem to make sense, they're trusting in God and his purposes and his character and his goodness. The righteous will live by faith. And this was Habakkuk's great spiritual struggle in this moment. Was he going to live by faith and trust God that even though things didn't make sense to him, nevertheless, God is all-wise, God is always good, and God is always in control, and I can trust him? Would Habakkuk live by trust in God? Will we, when faced with the unthinkable, when faced with adversity, Trusting in God and his promises and his goodness, even in the midst of unthinkable circumstances that don't really make sense to us, is the very essence of faith. Next, in chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 20, we saw Habakkuk essentially asking the parallel but opposite question. Lord, why do good things happen to bad people? It's hard enough to understand why God would allow bad things to happen to good people, but why on earth would God allow good things to happen to bad people? Wicked people, evil people, people opposed to Him? Why would God do that? Why would God seem to bless the wicked even while the righteous are suffering? Well, the Lord answers Habakkuk's question by reminding Habakkuk of the soon and certain judgment of the wicked. Their day is coming. The, their days of ease are numbered their days of blessing are limited to this earth and i shared with you then that wonderful outline of the declaration of the lord's soon and certain judgment on the wicked from o palmer robertson where he noticed that in verses 6 through 8 the pillager will be pillaged the wicked are going to get theirs, for the pillager is going to be pillaged. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the fortified is going to be dismantled, destroyed. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, the civilized will be demoralized. Verses 15 through 17, the shameless will be shamed. And in verses 18 and 19, the idolatrous will be made powerless. The day of the judgment of the wicked is coming. Rest assured, Habakkuk. Rest assured, church. And in the midst of these promises about the soon and certain judgment of the wicked comes the promise that one day, at the Lord's return, all that is wrong and wicked in this world will be turned Right side up. All will be made right. Look with me at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The wicked will be gone, and the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. There's coming a new day when the wicked will be judged. And the righteous will rule and reign with their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings us back up to speed and into chapter 3 and the conclusion of this wonderful little book. And here in chapter 3, we see the answer to the tough question, how can I face my worst case scenario? We've just entered into a new year and none of us knows what the future holds, we pray for blessing, we pray for the Lord's guidance, we pray for increase, all of it. We pray for these things, and it's good and right to do so, but none of us knows the Lord's plan or the Lord's design for us in the year to come. We know that living life in a sin-cursed world brings with it the reality of encountering some measure of adversity and suffering in the year to come. We better plan for it. We better ready ourselves for the hardship and adversity that is coming. We don't know what it is. We don't know how big it is. We don't know how difficult it will be. But we know that we've not been promised a problem-free life. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, take heart, Jesus says, for I've overcome the world. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we have these promises, but we know that adversity is coming. It could be a, a broken marriage. It could be the loss of a job or the loss of a sweet friendship. It could be News of an unthinkable diagnosis. Could even be the loss of a spouse or even a child. Now listen, these are difficult things to think about. Might take care of our growth issues. I keep talking this way. Nobody wants to think about the unthinkable. Nobody wants to contemplate hardship in a new year. We want to celebrate. We want to expect good things. Well, we better think about the reality of living life in a fallen world and the adversity that can come our way. It is wise to think about what we would do when faced with our own worst case scenario. How will I respond? If the worst thing I can think of happens? How will I respond spiritually? How will I view God in those days? What will I think about him? What will I tell others about him? Would our faith in God hold up under such pressure and assault? This kind of thinking through the worst case scenario is just what Habakkuk does here in chapter 3. So let me read for you Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. So just cruise along with me there in Habakkuk chapter 3 as I read it for us. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Lord I have heard the report about you and I fear O oh Lord revive your work in the midst of the years in the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy God comes from Timan and the holy one from Mount Paran Selah His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hands, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountain saw you and quaked. the downpour of water swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands, sun and moon stood in their places, they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear." In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of of his throngs they stormed in to scatter us their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters i heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound my lips quivered decay enters my bones and in my place i tremble because i must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Thanks be to God for his word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's difficult to contemplate Hardships that might await us. We don't like to think about that. But there's wisdom in doing so. There's wisdom in anticipating how we will respond. There's wisdom in committing ourselves with holy resolve to exalt in our Savior. To trust you in the midst of hardship grow us in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see this morning from Habakkuk chapter 3, what to do when it all goes wrong. What do you do when life goes haywire, when things happen that you didn't anticipate and you would have never wished for? What are you going to do? Habakkuk gives us a pattern I think we can follow. First of all, seek the Lord's mercy in prayer. Three keys for facing adversity. First, seek the Lord's mercy in prayer. Verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk is a different literary genre than the rest of the book. Chapter 3 is a prayer, a prayer song. Although the actual prayer is limited to verse Two, the whole thing is considered a kind of prayer, a prayer vision. Chapter three is a psalm, much like we would find in the Psalter. It's a song, complete with musical notations and instructions, and notations like Shiganoth. You could say getting shiggy with it if you want. And Selah, and for the choir director. Clearly, this is a song, it's supposed to be sung in worship. Not like any song we've sung. I, this is different kind of music here. Different kind of lyric. It's a poetic song of response to all that's been learned by Habakkuk in chapters 1 and 2. Habakkuk begins his song in verse 2. Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. I love Habakkuk's honesty. <laughs> I don't like the forecast This does not sound fun. This does not sound good. I've heard this and I fear. I've heard your message loud and clear, Lord, and the result is I tremble. I'm scared. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to do this. And yet, that fear also includes Habakkuk's reverence for the Lord his fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Habakkuk has grown in his fear of the Lord. No longer here in chapter 3 is he asking God pointed questions. His questions are at an end. He's come to be like Job with his hand over his mouth, silent in awe and wonder and holy reverence. In light of God's revelation that the Babylonians are coming as an instrument of his correction, Habakkuk prays and asks God to revive his work in the midst of the years. Habakkuk is asking God to intervene and act mightily even as he has done in the past for his people. Much of what follows has parallels with the Exodus in which God delivered his people from bondage, and judged Pharaoh and Egypt for their wickedness and hard-heartedness. And that's precisely what Habakkuk is asking for here. Lord, revive your work. Do it again. Deliver your people. Purify your people. Punish the wicked. Let justice prevail. the key request comes here at the end of verse 2. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, I understand better now your purposes. You intend to bring judgment upon Judah for its rebellion. You're going to display your wrath among your people to purify them, to call them back to yourself. But Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Lord, be merciful to us. Lord, we don't deserve it, but grant us mercy, Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to your compassion, according to your patience, Lord. Grant us mercy. I love that song we sing Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. That's a great way to start every day. Lord, have mercy. Habakkuk understands that even as God is just and that as his justice demands wrath, even so God is also merciful. And so he calls on God to show mercy in the midst of judgment. In the midst of adversity, Lord, show mercy. Grant mercy. Grant what I need to endure. Give me insight. Lord, help me to see what you're doing. Help me to trust you. Grant me the mercy to believe and trust. Habakkuk understands this. He is appealing to the reality of what theologians call the divine simplicity of God. Divine simplicity does not mean that God is simple, as in uncomplicated. Or simple as in slow, certainly doesn't mean that. No, not at all. Divine simplicity means that God is not a compound being made up of parts. He's not simply a bunch of parts pieced together. Divine simplicity means that God is at the same time all that God is. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. In the context of Habakkuk's prayer for mercy, it means that God is perfectly just and infinitely merciful, and he is always and always will be. Divine simplicity means that there are not times when God's justice is active while his mercy lies dormant, nor is there ever a time when God's mercy forces God's justice to take a back seat. No, all of God's attributes are ever present and ever active in all that God does and in all that God is. And Habakkuk recognizes this truth. And in the midst of God's judgment that is so well deserved by his rebellious people, Habakkuk prays for God to also be merciful in the midst of his justice. Habakkuk is simply praying in accord with who God is. In the midst of our suffering and adversity, it is good and right, and it is in keeping with who God himself is to also pray for mercy. When all that is in your world goes wrong, cry out to God for mercy. Ask God that in the midst of whatever else he's doing, that he would be merciful to you. Pray for God's mercy. His mercy that manifests itself in sustaining grace, in power to endure, in faith, and greater trust in God's purposes. All of these are manifestations of God's mercy in our lives in the midst of adversity. Pray for God to be glorified in your response. This too is an act of God's mercy and compassion in the midst of the adversities we face. So when it all goes wrong and all starts falling apart, pray, cry out to God, and ask him for mercy in the midst of whatever else he's doing, Plead for mercy and he will give it. Secondly, see the Lord in all his revealed glory. Verses 3 through 15. Beginning in verse 3 through verse 15, God answers Habakkuk's prayer for mercy. He shows Habakkuk mercy by revealing to him more of his character and glory. God presents himself here in a theophany. I'm not sure if it was a vision or just a, a revelation through word of who he is and what he does, but it's described in highly symbolic language here. God, the Holy One, comes from Timon and Mount Param. And most of us hear that and go, hmm, I've never been there. I don't know what that is. What is that? Why is that significant? Well, it's, the, it's all within the Sinai pen, Peninsula, and that's where the Exodus took place, right? It's the neighborhood of where the, the Exodus of old took place. And God reveals Himself in the context of the Exodus, of His mighty arm extended for the good of his people that's how God reveals himself what follows is a magnificently descriptive statement of God's glory and power I just want to take a moment and read it for you again we're not going to go through it line by line again much of it is highly symbolic It's about God's power over chaos. It seems as though the world is falling apart. It seems as though the forces of evil are having a heyday, but in fact, the Lord is in control. He's ruling and reigning in the midst of it all, and evil doesn't stand a chance against him. Let me read it once more. Verse 3, God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He's He's a bad whammy jammer. Okay, let me tell you that. That's what that means. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Remember who God is. His ways are everlasting. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Why? Because the Lord was in the neighborhood. And evil was trembling. Verse 8 Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? The sea in Scripture is almost always a symbol of chaos, a symbol of nature in opposition to humanity. Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Here again, we have a beautiful picture of the Exodus. Remember the chariots were pursuing the children of Israel as they crossed the sea. And God had parted the waters and then caused them to collapse in on the people. Well, here the picture has changed slightly. Now the Lord is riding his chariot, his chariot of power and strength and control over the face of the restless waters. Verse 9, your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. The whole universe stands and takes note when the Lord comes on the scene. verse 12 in indignation you marched through the earth in anger you trampled the nations you went forth for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed you struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck you pierced with his own spears the head of the, his throngs they stormed in to scatter us their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret verse 15 you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters God is pictured here as strong and in control. He is superior to every adversary and every adversity. God is mightily superior to every adversary and every adversity. He utterly defeats all of his enemies and always brings salvation to his people in his time. Again, look at verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. We got to incorporate that in a worship song somehow. I mean, Warrior talk. Filleted him. This is precisely what God has done for us in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Though it appeared Jesus was the one being filleted, the one being opened up from thigh to neck, in fact, it was the moment of God's greatest victory. God's greatest act of salvation was in the seeming defeat of His Son on the cross for you and for me. Through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, God has utterly defeated all our enemies. He has conquered death, He has rescued us from evil, and He has delivered for us salvation to all who will believe and receive His Son. The head of the house of evil has been crushed. Amen? Amen. Our greatest enemy, Satan himself, is a defeated foe. He is in the death throes. He is doing everything he can in this season to thwart God's purposes and God's plans, but it is futile because the Lord sits enthroned. The Lord is a mighty warrior, the Lord is in control. The Lord has power and strength beyond measure. In the midst of our adversity, it is good to be reminded of who is on the throne, church. Who is our God? It may feel like your life is spiraling out of control, that circumstances are random and that there is no purpose or meaning in any of it. It may seem as though God is powerless to deliver that the enemy has the upper hand and that heaven is silent in the midst of your suffering. But that is not reality. In such times, it is good to be reminded of who our God is, to see God in all of his revealed glory And to be reminded, along with Isaiah in Isaiah 59 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. We serve a God who doesn't have short hands, short arms, or deaf ears. He is on the scene, he is on the case, and he's working out his perfect purposes for us. Plead for mercy. And see the Lord in all his glory. Thirdly and finally. When the world seems to be falling apart all around you, stand firm with faith in God as your strength. Verses 16 through 19. Verse 16 shows us that, once again, Habakkuk has received the message. He says he trembles, he quivers... Decay enters his bones. (laughs) He's been assured of the Lord's power and strength, and yet he still knows it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. This isn't to sugarcoat or whitewash anything. Or to say that as Christians we just sort of live above it all. Not at all. Look at Habakkuk. He's trembling, he's quivering feels like there's deadness inside it's hard he knows what must come he knows that all that is left for him is to wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us and it ain't going to be pretty hard times are coming But notice that along with Habakkuk's trembling and quivering, there is also a holy resolve. Verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk's holy resolve. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord and will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on high places. Habakkuk here is imagining a version of his own worst case scenario. In an agrarian culture, crops and livestock were the difference between life and death. It's like Target for some of you. (laughs) Between survival and destruction. So Habakkuk conducts a thought experiment. This hasn't actually happened yet, but he's thinking it through. He's imagining how badly things could go and things could get. He imagines a worst-case scenario of figless fig trees, grapeless vineyards, barren olive trees, desolate fields that once produced an abundance of grain. His thought experiment then moves from the field to the fold, from the fields to the barns. He imagines the flock scattered and lost, the sheep nowhere to be found, no cattle in the stalls. He is imagining total devastation. Ground zero of destruction. In essence, Habakkuk is imagining losing everything. What would you do in such a circumstance? If you lost everything, everything you have, how will you respond? It's not something we like to think much about. But it's a good question. It's a wise question. For our faith is never really tested when our barns are full and the wind is at our backs. Our faith is tested most when life is hard and we experience loss and pain and grief. Notice in verse 18, Habakkuk's holy resolve in the face of this great potential loss. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Even if my worst case scenario happens, Lord, I will rejoice in the Lord. Though I lose everything, yet I will exult in God. I will rejoice in him, the God of my salvation. Habakkuk, in light of all that he has learned about God and his purposes, is determined to trust God in the midst of his own sufferings. He is determined to focus more on what he has in God than on what he has lost. To count his blessings in God, even when he's lost everything else. Habakkuk is resolved that come what may, he will trust in God. And in this way, the just will live by faith. It's similar to Job's holy resolve when he had lost everything. When he said in Job 13.15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. How can Habakkuk respond to such complete and total loss like this? The answer comes in verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. Habakkuk was not depending on his own strength. All he was was a shaking, quivering mass of death inside. No, he had no strength. The Lord would be his strength. He knew the coming storm was likely greater than he could ever endure on his own. And he knew he needed strength outside himself, a supernatural strength, a strength that can respond to adversity or even a worst-case scenario with an unflinching faith and an insuppressible joy in the Lord, despite the circumstance. And that's because the righteous will live by faith. Trusting in God. And what's the result of this holy resolve to stand firm with faith in God? Habakkuk ends this little book this way He has made my feet like hinds' feet, like deer's feet, feet of an ibex or a mountain deer, like the feet of a mountain goat or a great horned sheep. Have you ever seen these amazing animals, either in person or on a documentary or something like that, and they're bounding and bouncing all around the cliff sides? Unbelievably. Going where no one else can go? Climbing sheer cliffs where there seems to be no real footing anywhere of any kind? But there they are on the side of this cliff, Leaping from place to place, bouncing here and bounding there, going wherever they wish, unhindered, undeterred by the seeming impassibility of the rock face surrounding them. And they seem to leap about gracefully, even playfully. That's the picture here. That's what God has made Habakkuk. in the midst of unimaginable adversity through faith in him, he has given us a solid foothold and even grants us joy. Even when we're surrounded by what seems to be terrain that is completely impassable and completely impossible. But through faith in the Lord, with the Lord as our strength, He makes our feet like Heinz feet. Where we can go where others dare not tread. How can I face my worst case scenario? Through faith in our God. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in God who loved you and gave his own son for you. Through faith in Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself to redeem you. From the enemy, from destruction, from your own sins. How can you make it? By looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the just will live by faith. Let's pray together. Now, our God and Father, we thank you for your word, which is so rich and encouraging and troubling at times. We thank you for your promise that whatever we go through, whatever the future holds, whatever adversity we will face, we will not face it alone. For you've promised never to leave us or forsake us, to always be with us, to give us whatever we need in any moment, the grace we need to meet any challenge. Lord, all of this is your mercy. And so in this new year, just a few days in, we pray for mercy. We pray your mercy all over our lives. Lord, we pray for your strength in the face of adversity. Some have already and already are facing their worst-case scenario. Be near them. Comfort them. May your mercy be showered upon them. Lord, may we gain a new and renewed vision of who you are, your greatness, your power, your might, your rule over all things. Lord, help us to gain strength through faith in you. Most of all, Lord, we thank you that our greatest enemies have been thoroughly vanquished and defeated. They have been flayed open and our salvation has been purchased through the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.